You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Good morning, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. It is Saturday, September 4th, 2021, and we are broadcasting live to tape online and on the radio on WBNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, September 5th, 2021 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and Wednesday, September 8th on WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, We are bringing you an episode that I'm very excited for, an IWW interview series with five of the most prominent campaigns in the union today. We'll be hearing from them later on today's Valley Labor Report. So, folks, there is this nifty site. There's a very nifty site. It's called Linktree, and it allows me to have one link that I can tell you uh, that gives you everywhere that you can follow us and support the show. Want to find all of our social media? Go to linktr.ee slash tvlr. Want to figure out how you can support the show? Go to linktr.ee slash tvlr. Want to buy our merch? Go to linktr.ee slash tvlr. Want to listen to past episodes? Say it with me. Go to linktr.ee slash tvlr. This weekend is the North American Convention of the Industrial Workers of the World. It's being held online, and my branch, the Huntsville, Alabama General Membership Branch, is hosting, and I'm serving as a delegate. So I'm very excited about that, very proud uh, to be able to serve my branch and my union. And to commemorate this occasion, we are taking one more week to step out of the news cycle and bring you a collection of interviews that we did with members of the industrial workers of the world about their campaigns for higher wages, better working conditions, dignity, and control on the job. Uh, Most of y'all will know that everybody involved in this project, uh, myself, David Story, Adam Keller, we are all members of the IWW. We are proud to be members of a union with such a long history of militancy, democracy, and with an eye towards a revolutionary goal, workplace democracy. Uh, we are proud to be members of a union that counts in, it li- in its list of members 
giants in the labor movement, such as Helen Keller, Mother Jones, Eugene Debs, Big Bill Haywood, Harry Bridges, Joe Hill, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Tom Morello, Lucy Parsons, and many, many more. Uh, we are proud to be members of a union that is continuing to fight for workers' rights today, and not only that, but helping workers fight for themselves that may feel like they have slipped under the radar of other unions. Uh, many of the folks that you'll hear from today are in work workforces that are extremely, extremely anti-union, where almost no one else has a real presence. Workplaces like fast food restaurants, cafes, diners, call centers, and nonprofits. Um, but before we hear from those workers, I wanted to give you an extremely brief and simplistic historical overview of the IWW uh, so that we've got some context, because the IWW operates a little bit differently from some other unions, uh, but it has a very, very rich history, and they're doing lots of good work all over the country and all over the world, uh, even today. So to start off with, you know, everybody knows that institutions change. Okay, unions today are one of the best places in our society to fight for marginalized communities, and uh, they get the best results. Right, the labor movement is on the front lines of struggles for women's rights, for civil rights, for immigrants' rights, and more. And it has been for a long time. And it's on the front lines of those fights in so many different fronts, right? Within the workplace, we can see that in unions, the gender wage gap is, uh, is, is almost vanishingly small, much smaller than in the non-union workplace. And in fact, we can look to Wisconsin. We did a deep dive into this. There was a study um, out of Wisconsin that showed that before the passage of Act 10, which uh, decimated public sector unions in Wisconsin, there was zero, zero pay gap among male and female teachers in Wisconsin. And after that, all teachers saw a decrease in their salary of about $10,000. And on top of that, female teachers uh, are now making 11% less than their male counterparts. And, it, and that cannot be accounted for when you, when you look at things like uh, experience, hours worked, you know, things like that. It's just due to discrimination. And that's something that, uh, that, that unions are able to fight inside of the workforce. But even outside of the workforce, uh, unions are fighting for laws that make it easier for immigrants to organize on the job, that make it easier, uh, that, that make it easier for women to enter and exit the workforce. They fight for paid family leave and so many more things. During the Civil Rights Movement, for example, it's a little-known fact that the UAW was a large funder of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters uh, provided a lot of the transportation. Uh, this wasn't always the case, though. In fact, in the late 19th and early 20th century, many unions found themselves on the wrong side of these battles. They supported the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1892. They supported uh, uh, Jim Crow. They supported segregation. They would not allow women and minorities and immigrants into their unions. And so, you know, unions were in many places 
a reactionary force for basically everything except, you know, white men's wages. And, uh, you know, this was not the case for the industrial workers of the world. The industrial workers of the world at the time of their founding in 1905, they were the only union who uh, whose members included women and minorities. And not only their members, their leaders. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was one of the most prominent members of the IWW around this time. And that that is huge. The, I mean, to to be the only union that is that your membership is open to the, these groups of people, and then those groups of people are in your leadership. That's a huge thing. And the and so the IWW has always been on the front lines of these these fights for marginalized communities, where other unions wouldn't organize them. The IWW organized migrant farm workers in the West and the Midwest in the 1900s. Between 1917 and 1924, the IWW organized lumberjacks in the Pacific Northwest, and they won an eight-hour day in 1917 on the Philadelphia and Baltimore waterfronts. Local eight of the Marine transport workers and affiliate of the IWW was one of the most storied locals in the union's history, being led by black and immigrant workers. This is a through line of the IWW, uh, this next thing. And one of the things that makes it different from other unions, and that is that its membership is not restricted to represented workplaces. Okay, so for example, I can't be a member of the UAW, the United Auto Workers, if I don't work in a represented Ford or GM plant, for example. But I can be, and I am, a member of the IWW, even though the IWW does not represent me on the job, and this has allowed the union and its ideals of democratic and militant unionism to influence workplaces where they don't officially have a presence. Uh, Wobblies were involved in the famous UAW sit-down strikes in the 1930s, especially in Detroit, for example. And not only does this allow for influence and agitation in other unions and other workplaces, Workplaces, but today, dual carters provide a wealth of knowledge and lessons learned for new IWW organizers who are trying to organize on the job, and they can. And these dual carters, who are in unions other than the IWW, can provide crucial support on these campaigns. Uh, today, the IWW has seen an enormous upsurge since 2010, and although the surge is new, the traditions that they are holding to is not, namely the traditions of organizing the unorganizable. Where a hundred years ago, Wobblies were organizing minorities and women where nobody else would, today, Wobblies are organizing fast food and service sector workers where no one else will. They do this through their model of organizing the worker instead of the workplace. What that means is giving workers the tools and the education to organize workplaces themselves instead of relying so much on staff and outside organizers. Another tradition that the IWW has not lost is its disdain and distrust of the state. You'll notice that in most of these campaigns that we talk to workers from today, the union is not NLRB certified, and the workers have not even requested an election, and uh, that's by design. Their view is that they are a union. Uh, They don't need the government to tell them that. 
this doesn't stop some workers from seeking elections and contracts where they feel like it is in their best interest, but uh, these are only tools in a Wobbly's arsenal, and uh, it's not necessary to have these tools. We talk to workers from five different campaigns in the IWW, and when we come back from the break, we're going to hear from Julia. Julia was part of a campaign to organize a local cafe in Florida, so make sure that you stay tuned in. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. If you're looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334 that's 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at net. and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Let's go! Alabama's only Union Talk Radio Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. Uh, This is our special IWW interview series. Our first interview is with Julia. She was part of a campaign to organize a local cafe in Florida. And this is a really, this was a really, really fascinating interview. And I wanted to interview her, and because this is a campaign. That from the outside looking in, it may not look, you know, stereotypically successful. Okay, um, and and so I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But even though from the outside looking in, you may not look at it and say this was a successful campaign. Everybody came away being proud that they did what they did and uh, willing to do it again. And that's really that it, that was really fascinating to me because a lot of people would take a loss and they would say that this doesn't work, I'm never doing this again. And that is the exact opposite attitude these workers took from this campaign. And so I'm really excited for this interview. I hope that y'all get as much out of it as I do. This is Julia. Yeah, my name is Julia. Uh, I was working at Dandelion Cafe in Florida for about three years. The business itself was... I think like 13 or 14 years old, uh, a vegan restaurant, um, pretty big in the community. And, but basically Dandelion was toted as a community based, uh, place of work, sustainable, progressive, all of the like 
uh, keywords of like the progressive movement right now. But as workers, we really didn't see that happening. It did foster a place for us as coworkers to really get to know each other and encourage each other and become lifelong friends. What was it about the cafe that made it made it such that it built such strong bonds between you and your coworkers? Having such terrible management, it really relied on like the people who like stayed really had to make sure they talked to each other about like what was happening because otherwise you would never find out. Um, so I think that that did quite a big, um, was quite a big point of the reason we were all so closely attached. So did you come to work at the Dandelion with, uh, like w- with that education about unions and how to start one and, and what they can do for people or like how, how did Not that idea all. even get in your head? So it it was definitely not I didn't know anything about it. The only experience I had was having had she workplaces, um, which I think is a big part of realizing why union is important. But um no, I had no idea. It was just like round tables, we would like complain and I was like, Wow, like we do better when the owner isn't here and like wow, we communicate if they just literally texted us this one thing like what was going to be on the menu like we could do our job so much better and just talking about that for a while and then I can't remember which came first I think that discord came first we were like well let's have a way we can all talk that's not through like our employee Hmm. communication like group chat so that came about and we would like talk about stuff and then there was one guy, Robert, who is amazing. And he really like, y'all should unionize, should unionize. And he was like, I know some folks at the IWW, like I'll put you together. So we've, you know, we're kind of walking through, walking through your story and, and the story of, of the, uh, the dandelion cafe. Um, you get everybody on, or you get the majority of people on board and you said that you sent a letter of intent to unionize. And and you said that there weren't very many demands in that letter. Can you go into some, some more detail about, about the letter itself and management's reaction to that? So I kind of need to go a little bit before we gave the letter. Okay. So we have one, one of our workers. She has another job, so she's safe if anything happens. She, we come up with a letter all together, like a post, and she basically says, hey, we would like a employee meeting where we can discuss some things, and then we were planning on giving them the letter. They said, this is inappropriate. We've told you not to message about employee meetings and fired her. And then in a private message, our boss basically told her that she was um, bullying her. So Jen, the employee, was bullying the boss by asking for an employee meeting. That happened Saturday. So then Monday after work, we gave them the letter. And what did the letter say? What was in the letter? So the letter was, we are the workers of Dandy, the Seeds. Um, We are a union. We would like to have a discussion about like, these issues basically 
pay, safety, and management. I just want to make sure I'm clear here. You asked, or y'all asked for a meeting to discuss concerns. Um, You didn't threaten to send the boss to the gulag, to the guillotine. (laughs) You did not. You didn't say you were going to go on strike or or picket the restaurant, sabotage the restaurant. You asked for a damn meeting to talk about concerns. So, so this is, so we are Monday after work. You've given them the letter. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is after they have already fired somebody for requesting a meeting outside of the letter mm-hmm. so like it's possible mm-hmm. they didn't even know about like the union stuff at, at uh, until monday after work what is their reaction to yeah. the letter so around three or four five of us were like hey cheryl we need to talk to you here's this letter we love you we love this place um but we're a union gave them the letter she was just like kind of frozen and just like (laughs) okay and walked away and then seven i think seven hours later we all got an email saying uh dandelion is officially closed for a week um we will open back like we will we're closed for a week um so they locked us out of our jobs Wow. Which is an unfair labor practice because it is retaliation against the workers for becoming a union. Now, the IWW, they know what to do. They're like, we're going to set up a picket line. You guys are locked out. We're going to be out there telling the community what's up. In the mission statement online for Dandelion, I don't know what the whole thing was, but the one thing that stands out to me was... um, Conscious capitalism. Oh my god! <laughs> uh huh. Well, we so see like, how oh, that works. No, you're exploiting your workers. <laughs> okay. Conscious. Yeah, that's how. If you if you're saying it's conscious capitalism, that's how you know that uh, it's not. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my yes. God. That was right next to sustainability and progressive. Oh Jesus. So, that's why I do not trust either of those words anymore. So, yeah. Uh, all right, so what are, you know, what happens after after this? They say that they uh, are going to open back and open up in a week after a week of locking you mm-hmm. out. Did they ever open back mm-hmm. up? No, they said stay tuned for like when we open back up. A week happens and we get an email saying, here are your final checks. Uh, Dandelion is closed. Um, and then, you know, we look online the website is completely taken down and says, because of COVID, we had to close. Um, yeah. So it felt really weird and it didn't feel like closure at the time. Um, but you know, we got with IWW, we had, we knew we were going to file ULPs, unfair labor practices, to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. We did that. Um, I think they filed 10 in total. The NLRB said that four of them were viable, um, and we settled out of court. Um, We did not settle for any money. No one got any money. It was basically just the uh, owners were had to like have a sign saying like and if they if they opened a business in the next two years they had to have a sign saying that 
you have the rights to do X, Y, and Z. Like you have the rights to be in a union. You have the rights to talk about this. They also had to send all of us that letter. So a few of us have it hanging in our houses. Um, So Julia, why is this in your, in in your mind and, and in the presumably, and I guess you can correct me if this isn't the case and presumably in the minds of your uh, you know, fellow workers in the union. Why is this a ultimately like positive thing that you did? Like, because a lot of people that that I that I grew up with, especially that that don't have like a union mindset, uh, they would hear this story and think, "See, this is exactly why um, unions are not." Are, are not practicable they uh you know look the business closed and now they don't even have a they don't even have that job anymore whereas at least before they tried to get all uppity uh they had that job yeah this is what happens when you rock mm-hmm. the boat and right. make trouble what what is it about this campaign that like made you walk away from it feeling like good about what you did and good about your decisions and that like you would do it again so i speaking for myself and i do think um the majority of my uh comrades the people from the seeds would agree um it made it a success because we actually tried you know people were telling us that we were being lazy etc i have never worked harder in my life than that week we were locked out and weren't technically working. I worked so hard with my coworkers. Um, We fought for each other. We fought so we could have a really good workplace. We loved each other so much that we were willing to stay and do hours of unpaid free labor to make this business where we wanted to work, to make it successful enough that we were, could be able to get paid more and could get safer conditions and management we worked so hard to make that business the best it could be so we could keep working there and that's what made it a success like them not listening to us and closing the restaurant is on them that's on them like we you know we're always told like do the best you can leave it better than when you found it we could all have just quit and found a new job. They could have hired more people. But even if we did, you know, everything did go through and they were a union, they're still open. They would be a union and people could come in and get a living wage. And like, and then that would also be a success. So if that couldn't be possible, I'm glad they're not open anymore because it sends a message that, you cannot treat your workers like this. It doesn't matter if you are a progressive, local, sustainable, vegan cafe. Like You still have the responsibility as deciding to be business owners to treat your employees just as good as you treat your customers. And if you can't, you shouldn't have a business. So now that business that couldn't do that isn't open anymore. Since 1889, the National Association of Letter Carriers has protected the rights of city carriers as they deliver the mail and offered support for their community. 
Today, the National Association of Letter Carriers, NALC, sponsors the Muscular Dystrophy Association in the fight against neuromuscular disease and jointly conducts the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive, the largest single-day event of its kind. The NALC makes their legislative voices heard when it comes to issues involving the U.S. Postal Service and the working members of the union. To learn more, visit NALCBranch462.org. That's NALCBranch462.org. National Association of Letter Carriers, Branch 462, representing city carriers in Huntsville, Madison, Scottsboro, and ARAP. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, believes all workers are entitled to fairness, dignity, and respect. AFGE also knows that the best way to guarantee proper treatment is for workers to stand together, united, looking out for each other. In AFGE, we fight for workers every day to ensure a workplace that is safe and free from harassment. If you're a federal employee and want to be a part of this union to protect yourself and your fellow workers, call 256 876 4880. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor. Happy Labor Day weekend, everybody. Our next interview is with workers at a call center in Wisconsin who have been organizing with the IWW and winning for years. This is Andrew and Tamara. They are members of the Milwaukee IWW, and they are organizing at Captel in Wisconsin. Thanks, Andrew and, Ta- Andrew and Tamara, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, before we jump into the campaign, uh, can y'all introduce yourselves? I guess, Tamara, we can start with you. Like, um, how did you uh, come to, like, h- how did you come to the, the kind of work that you're involved in now at Captel? Uh, uh, by career, I am a cab driver, but due to Uber and Lyft services, as well as some of the like logistic care offering free medical rides, um, the, the taxi business really tanked. Hmm. And so I just started looking for like, basically have tongue, will scrub toilets, any <laughs> job that would have me because I needed an income and, uh, fell into this, uh, Probably by providence, um, I do believe that part of my purpose is, you know, if not my whole my whole justification for living is organizing. So mm. I think I was just supposed to be here, you know. Right, right. And Andrew, you're in. You've been an external organizer for the campaign. How did you come into, you know, wanting to do? organizing war you know like these are uh you know these are people that you don't even work with necessarily right so how is it that you came to be interested in in like their well-being and and helping them to organize yeah so basically i had worked at captel basically just out of college because i needed a job and my degree isn't particularly relevant to what I really wanted to do. I got a degree in political science, and I absolutely don't want to go into politics. Right. Uh, so I just kind of took a job because Captel employs a lot of people. 
like several hundred people just in Milwaukee. And so it was kind of like the place where I knew a lot of people who worked there decided to get a job there. And then basically after a couple of years there, I was like, well, if I'm still here, I might as well organize a union. And so even though after I left, it's kind of one of those things where I can support people still organizing, even though I'm no longer at that job. So with the IWW, you know, we organize the worker primarily and not just the workplace. So even though I'm no longer there, I'm still a member of the union and I can still lend my support doing basic administrative type stuff at this point because I care about all those people and that's what it's about for me. Help us understand what happens in the call center. I said in the opening that, you know, it is a transcription service. It's not necessarily like customer service. You know, you're not you're not uh, calling me and asking about my car's extended warranty, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so maybe that'll that'll make some folks a, a little bit more sympathetic to you. But you know, help us understand uh, the day to day. Like you, okay, you clock in. Wh- what is it that you do? Um, basically calls just chime in and I may in fact be facilitating the robocaller that's trying to sell you uh, an extended warranty on your car because I essentially repeat everything that the caller says and then the software puts it into text. Uh, mm. They do now have uh, an upgraded software uh where it's sort of auto-generated, but it's still full of mistakes. So then I have to go through and read and, and correct all of those. It's, it's a special phone that customers will get. So the CapTel is its own phone that has a screen where, let's say, you can't hear very well, or even a lot of cases if you're a lawyer or someone who wants a transcription record, of a conversation, uh, this special phone allows you to turn the captions on. And once you turn the captions on, that call goes to someone like Tamara or another captioning assistant to then caption. Yeah, it's it's a priceless service for the people that genuinely need it. That aside, though, you know, the, the potential fulfillment and meaning that, that maybe you get from that, obviously unions don't tend to, although, you know, I'm sure that all of us would agree that they should, but they don't tend to um, appear from great working environments. You know, people who, (laughs) people who, (laughs) you know, I think everybody should join a union. And even if you love your boss and you got good wages, you should still have a union and you should agitate for one and organize for one at work. But that's not generally how it happens. Generally, there are some complaints that people have that they want to make. They want to make their workplace better for whatever reason. So what was the like, what was the genesis for the campaign at CapTel? Uh, basically, I would say the catalyst, uh, first of all, there had been a prior campaign in Madison that did get everybody uh, lost wages that were uh, due to a time clock defect or something of that nature. Um, but anyways, I think it was summer of 2014, I want to say. It used to have to be that you had to turn the captions on. Now you have to actively 
turn the captions off. Otherwise, mm. you have captions. Um, and that exponentiated our workload. The workload, at least, at least for everyone, tripled. And uh, the wages stayed the same. Yeah. You know, something interesting that you said, though, is about how there was already a previous campaign and some previous success. And I think that's one of the most common themes in, in this subject is organizing begets more organizing. If you see that organizing is getting the goods, okay, well, now you're, you're more interested in doing it in the future and it may get other people involved. And, of course, combined with what you've said in terms of increased workload for same wages, that, I mean, hell, that's a theme across our economy, unfortunately. How is it that uh, that that y'all become mi- members uh, there in Milwaukee? Uh, well, Andrew baked some cookies that he shared with me. Mm. Um, Food always helps in yeah. organizing. Absolutely, yes. yeah. I baked your cookies. <laughs> then uh, we had a brutal winter that year. I offered him a ride home. And then, I don't know, about a week later, he's like, uh, hey, lady, you want to join my union? And I'm, I was just all, hell yeah, because this place sucks. <laughs> what was one of the first uh, campaigns that, that y'all worked together on at the, uh, um, at the Milwaukee Capitol? I would say just like actually building the committee, because mm-hmm. technically the the union's first victory in Milwaukee didn't happen until like right after I had left. Mm. So like to, to be totally honest, like I helped build the committee, but the, the first victory, um, like, so tomorrow can talk about that. Okay. Well, yeah. Talk about building the committee and like how you were able to, uh, cause I mean, that's, a, that's a, uh, you know, something like you mentioned the, how, how much it helps just to know how to, form a union how to form your committee and how to you know talk to us about actually the formation of the committee at Capitol. yeah so it was a lot of uh basically just trying to make time for everyone and doing whatever i could to meet people where they're at you know whether that's biking or busing all the way across town for a weird like half hour to an hour this person is available at this location just is really about just trying to accommodate other people so that they know you actually do legitimately care about this and you will go out of your way for people. And so I think like that earns a lot of trust and a lot of respect among your coworkers where, no, this isn't just some harebrained scheme that I'm mad at the boss, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I'm, you know, like showing people that this is a serious thing I'm committed to and I will make it a point to, like meet you and accommodate however is needed. And what was that first victory, Andrew? Uh, I believe that was a pay increase, right, Tamara? Uh, yeah, it was actually a pretty significant pay increase, and it was oh, less than two weeks after Andrew left, which really... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I mean, that bummed me out. I, it was hard not to feel, like, guilty about that. Uh, <laughs> but um, we had organized a slowdown because every mm-hmm. time a call gets 30 seconds behind, it chimes at the supervisor's desk, 
Mm. And we got dozens. I think it was what with like fifty between fifty and sixty people, wasn't it, Andrew, that had agreed to slow down? Uh, uh, I don't think it was that many. I think it was probably closer to forty. Okay. And but how many still, people work a, a shift at a time? Uh two to three hundred. That's a pretty so, good bit doing a uh <laughs> you know. Yeah, dude. and so the, and that was that was in protest of the you know the lack of a increase in in pay, right? Yeah, or I think specifically like the slowdown was to like basically try to use our muscle because HR was just ignoring, mm. right? Like I was just trying to like deny that we existed. No surprise there. So yeah, the the slowdown was just like okay, here's something you can't ignore. Tamara, how did you actually convince people to do a slowdown on the job? Because, you know, uh, there's obviously a lot of fear um, in the workforce today about retaliation, about, um, you know, if I'm not good at my job or if I don't, if I specifically decide not to be good on my job, then I can be fired or I can be disciplined, or especially if I walk off the job on strike or something like that. You know, it's a, it's a very scary thing to engage in these, uh, you know, sort of industrial actions like y'all did. How was it that they, that, that the workers there decided that, um, you know, this is something that we feel strongly enough about that we're willing to take this kind of action? Well, I think a a good part of it is because Capfeld themselves were just so incredibly desperate uh, to to have their demands met. They couldn't afford to retaliate against us. And morale had tanked so badly because everybody was incredibly overworked and seriously underpaid. that the threat of retaliation was like, what are they possibly going to do? They can't, they can't discipline all of this. They can't mm. prove this. They, the, they're literally, there was nothing that they could have honestly done. Like what, what was the fallout? Uh, within two weeks, everybody got a dollar an hour permanent raise. And we also got a $1 an hour busy season bonus that went from uh, backdated to November 1st through January 31st. So everybody got a dollar an hour extra for every hour worked. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hey, you listen to conservative talk radio all week. Why don't you try something different for a change? The Majority Report with Sam Cedar is a five-time award-winning daily left-wing political talk show. We go live every weekday at 11 a.m. Central Time on our YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for The Majority Report. We talk about the news. We take libertarian callers. We have debates. We interview guests on topics ranging from the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, child poverty, capitalism, the intellectual dark web, and more. And that's all just within the last month. If you want to hear what smart, progressive political talk that is occasionally amusing sounds like, then you need to tune in. And you're always welcome to call in if you want to hear the correct opinion on any given topic. I will give it to you. Tune in to the Majority Report at 11 a.m. Central Time on YouTube or later wherever you get your podcasts.
Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. It gets shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations with pay. Take your kids to the seashore. You don't need your boss. Your boss needs you. And you know that because you listen to the Valley Labor Report. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report on Labor Day weekend. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, Adam Keller. Uh, This is our IWW interview series. We talked to an Alabama expat who went off to New York and joined the Stardust Family United Union which is a campaign of the IWW in New York. Ellen's Stardust Diner, that's where this campaign takes place, is a fascinating, a fascinating restaurant. And the union even more so. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I love the fact that Erica is from Alabama. She is the second person recently that we've talked to from New York, from Alabama. Uh, the last uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago, we t- talked to the secretary for the New Yorker Union, and she is an Alabama expat as well. So I don't know what's going on up in New York, but all of the good labor folks seem to be from Alabama. Uh, I have definitely enjoyed that, and I really enjoyed the conversation with Erica. I know you will, too. This is her story. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. To start off, can you tell us about Stardust Diner? Exactly like what what makes Stardust kind of an interesting place? So Stardust is fascinating because it is a world-known tourist restaurant in the middle of Times Square in New York City. And it is famous for its singing waitstaff. So just about everyone who works there is a professional singer, um, either trying to be on Broadway or has been on Broadway and is between contracts at the moment. Um, But it's just a really unique place where you can go and eat, you know, your standard, typical Times Square food fair, Mm -hmm. but you get world-class entertainment while you eat and it's constant. So you walk in. And it's like walking into a circus. There's something going on everywhere, every minute that you're there. And um, the the people performing for you are performing, you know, wholeheartedly and having as much fun as you are doing doing what they do best. Yeah. So how does that work? Like, are you performing? Like, are you singing to me? Like, while I'm ordering? Like, are, you know, like, Jake, are you ready to order? Or is it like a, you take shifts doing the waiting and then doing the performing? Like, how, how does that? How does that work? So ideally, you learn to, to multitask enough that you can fully perform your song when it's your turn. Um mm-hmm. But there are times when I have either put a microphone, you know, down the front of my shirt and passed out drinks while I have been uh, singing my song. I had one song in my roster that if I was really slammed and I just desperately needed to um, take an order and I didn't have time to stop and sing, I could take the order while singing the song. Wow. And... And then as soon as the song is done, you know, you run back through and you're like, did I get everyone's food incorrectly? Mm -hmm. Um, But 
most of the time you could play with your audience. Um, essentially they were a captive audience. They weren't going anywhere while they had food on the table. <laughs> right. Uh, so we had a lot of fun with that, but you know, we would do big group numbers where everyone would, would play and we did any way, anything from, you know, big Broadway numbers, or there was a Lady Gaga number where, um, you had until a certain point in the song to make your costume. Um, so a lot of times we'd make like capes or sashes out of receipt paper, and then we would do a fashion show. Um, so it was a really special place to work. And, um, we all had a really good time, even on days that you really hated being a waiter, you still got to do the fun part, which was the performing and playing with your friends and getting paid to do so hypothetically i just gotta say this this blows my mind as someone who used to wait tables uh i mean i could barely melt i mean like if someone gave me a coupon all right i'm already struggling uh so to imagine like performing full numbers which i couldn't do anyway but just the 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 level of of multitasking i don't know how much i all got paid but it wasn't enough i'm sure now i didn't say i was a good waiter (laughs) sure you got your food whether or not you got a refill when you asked for it right. 15 minutes later when I remembered that you asked me for another Diet Coke, different story. But you got a hell of a song, uh, and so, you know, that that does help. And, you know, that you had this beautiful little, like, secret where if your tables really just hated you at the moment, you could be like, hey, um, I need to sing something very impressive on my next turn because mm. uh, everybody hates me right now. And you could kind of make up for being a mediocre waiter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I see. You couldn't get away with murder, but you could get pretty close. What was it like to, you know, work in that environment? So I started working there in 2016. And this is right before we went public with the union. Mm-hmm. And you had this big 90-day waiting period where you were technically hired, but they could fire you at any minute for anything. Right. And they had been. So the minute I got hired there, you were seeing people get fired for just ridiculous things. Um, and the tensions were obviously very high and I was very anxious and nervous and I just smiled too much. So people were like, Ugh, what's wrong with her? She's very happy all the time. And it mm. was cause I was just, I needed the job and I didn't want to get fired. So I think a few days after my um, probation period was over, that's what that 90 days mm-hmm. was called. Um, I was crying in the corner over something. And one of my coworkers was like, you should, you should go talk to Bianca. Like you should talk to Bianca. And I was like, um, okay, I don't really know her that well. And they're like, no, just go talk to Bianca. And so I went and I, talk to Bianca, who's, you know, one of the kindest, most wonderful humans on the face of the planet. And she was like, hey, some of us are getting together uh, in Queens for a meeting. You should come. And I was like, "Okay." Not knowing if I was going to a therapy session or if it was a (laughs) I didn't really have any idea what I was walking into. And so I walked in to this very organized circle of people and they were discussing the union and So I joined Mm -hmm. pretty much immediately and I was like, yes, this sounds like a great idea. And it wasn't it wasn't about anything radical. It was just making sure that we had a unified voice as the group of servers. And not only that, we had a voice that 
that the other people in the kitchen and the busing staff and back of house, that everyone had a voice that if we were having issues with management, which were abundant at the time, because they just switched the whole team of managers. Um, and that's kind of what the catalyst was for wanting to form this union. And so we formed the union, we went public. Um, and then I want to say less than three months after that, they ended up firing a whole bunch of servers. Uh, the first round was 13 servers uh, that they fired and they accused them of theft. And mm. and they, it had happened right after the last big round of new hires had finished their probation period. So we kind of realized that we were hired to replace all these people that they had planned on firing. Um, so that was a sobering day. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. when things really kicked off because they'd fired people who had built that restaurant and were the reason that tourists lined up outside to go there. It was not known for food. Right. It was known because of these world-class performers and the, the joy that you were going to leave that restaurant with. Um, so they had the first big round of firings and then we got through the Christmas season, which is the big season. And then they fired another, um, 16 people in person. So the total came to like 33 people total that they fired for theft and not one of them had ever stolen a, a dime from that diner. Uh, that didn't really sit well with, with anyone in the diner. So what they did by doing that is they kind of gave us our first catalyst to like agitate and, get more people on board with the union because we were like, are, are, are you going to let them do this to you? So that, that was the real kickoff for Stardust becoming a big thing. And really what we wanted was just for those people to get their jobs back. So that's when the picketing started and um, they put up these really amazing curtains to like try to close off the diner from the street where our, our staff was picketing and people would go out on their dinner breaks. So we got a half hour for dinner mm -hmm. and we would go out and picket on our dinner break and then come back into the diner and finish working our shift. And so it was, you just had a lot of people who were very passionate about making sure that people got their jobs back and that this wasn't just going to be something that they could continue to do once they got tired of you or once you'd, had an opinion that they didn't appreciate that they could just fire you for stealing when you didn't obviously didn't steal anything. The, the thing I have to be most proud of is getting 33 people, their jobs back. It took a long time, but the day that that first wave walked back into the diner for their first shift back was a feeling that I just can't, I can't even describe it. Like it was pure joy and it was the greatest sense of accomplishment I've ever had because it was not, it was not one person's work. It was not two people's work. It was an entire group of people coming together and standing up for what they knew was, was right. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256-876-4880. Chuck Gore is a certified federal retirement consultant with Labor Retirement Services. Chuck works exclusively in the labor market to help union members take the uncertainty out of financial decision-making. Union retirements are unique, and he will help you understand your benefits and avoid the most common mistakes union members make when retiring. Chuck provides a no-cost written financial plan that includes Social Security planning to determine your long-term retirement strategy. In addition to helping individual union members manage their finances, he is available for and has conducted many retirement trainings for union locals across the South. Chuck has helped hundreds of union members reach their retirement dreams, so whether you're an apprentice or a seasoned journeyman, an individual union member wanting some help, or an officer trying to help your members now, Navigate retirement. Let Chuck help you with all of your financial needs. LaborRetirementServices.com, 205-970-9799. Again, the web address is LaborRetirementServices.com, and the phone number is 205-970-9799. And make sure that you tell Chuck you heard about him on the Valley Labor Report. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. All power to the working class. My name is Jacob Morris, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Keller. This is Labor Day weekend 2021, and we are in the middle of a series of interviews with Wobblies from across the country. And next up, we've got Dustin White, who is a member of the West Virginia IWW and was involved in the campaign to organize the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition. This is his story. Dustin, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, of course, of course. Really looking forward to it. So uh, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, uh, can you talk to us about that? Uh, like what what does, you know, it sounds like some some sort of environmental nonprofit, right? Is that, you know, what kind of stuff did y'all do? Yeah, so the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition was an environmental justice grassroots nonprofit located in Huntington, West Virginia, that was really focused on the environmental impacts and the health and safety of communities uh, throughout West Virginia and most of the central Appalachian region. What were some of the projects that y'all, you know, engaged in? 
with OVEC, we worked a lot um, on mountaintop removal coal mining. That's initially where I got my start, plus other egregious mining techniques, uh, fracking, uh, which is a, a prevalent issue here inside the state, and uh, a proposed um, petrochemical mega complex that they've been trying to get off the ground that would span over 500 square miles here in the Appalachian region. Um, and those were just some of the common projects that we were working on up to the point of my termination. Wow. Yeah. The, well, those sound like those sound like important projects. How did you come to be, uh, you know, uh, a worker at OVEC? Well, I started as a volunteer with OVEC and was a volunteer for nearly five years um, where I worked on several issues, including cemetery preservation. Uh, I had a family cemetery that was almost destroyed by mountaintop removal coal mining. Um, so that's really what kind of propelled me into this. And then as I did the work, I started learning about people I knew who had gotten poisoned by coal pollution and were passing away at very early ages and I was outliving them. So that really propelled me into this work of wanting to make a change in West Virginia and to work from the environmental side. It was a job for you. It was a, it was a way to make a living, right? But it, it was, you know... Th- it was connected to a cause and something that you you felt was like making the world better and that you got, you know, some amount of like fulfillment from. And like, this is something that you enjoyed doing. You felt had a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, combined time of volunteer and staff, I was nearly there for 15 years doing this type of work. Wow. What were the, the working conditions there like? Well, uh, at the time, it felt very much, you know, the, the quote-unquote, you know, friendly working conditions. We, we kind of considered, you know, the work that we do important, and we were there for each other and supported each other, and it wasn't very um, management-heavy. Um, everyone seemed to have a fairly objective voice in what work we do, and at the time, it, it really felt like a part of home, too. Was there like a change that happened, like a particular event or a, or a change in management? Well, part of the reason why we went into talks about organizing, while there were some minor issues at the time in the workplace, we mainly wanted to ensure our future um, because the current executive director was talking about retirement coming up in the next few years. And we had already went through a situation where we had a previous executive director who was very domineering and heavy handed and really liked to try to punish people for no reason. Um, And we didn't want to see that happen again with the with our next uh, director stepping off. So we wanted to make sure that we had those safety measures in place to be able to have a union at our backs um, so that history doesn't repeat itself. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that it sounds like y'all were basically taking the advice that I had laid out there. Like you were like, you know, look, I've got it pretty good, but there's change in management coming up and we just want to make sure that everything stays the same, basically. And that was uh, that was not met with like uh, um, what's what what I'm trying to think. It was not met well, basically. (laughs) Yeah. So. I mean, we essentially started talking about unionizing in the fall of 2020, 
Um, and in March, we were actually outed by another employee. Oh, no. Management and told uh, them, told our executive director what was happening. Um, and then right from the start, it was immediately like the walls went up. Um, management pretty much stoned Wallace and stopped talking to any of the staff that was involved in the unionizing efforts. Um, a few days later, they got us on a Zoom call with a, a board member who was seen to be, quote, an expert in unions because he was once part of one. And he spent the next two hours belittling us, talking over us and explaining how good unions were, but not for OVEC. Um, and then, yeah, after after the bullying and everything reached a peak and, you know, they, they bullied like I said, that longtime friend and volunteer of mine who I've worked with real close, um, I pretty much went public on social media about all the things that they were doing. And it was two days later that they fired me. Um, they cited my social media posts uh, as part of the reason for my termination. And they claimed that I harassed and bullied board members. Wow. Uh, and even threatened them when what I said was... Uh, we will, if you're going to continue to ignore us, we'll show up in space as you are because that's what organizing is. And right. they, that, that was a threat to them. Hmm. Well, this definitely hits home with me, Dustin. Uh, it definitely hits home with me. And I had very similar experience working for a uh, ostensible labor organization. But yeah, it was once the, once our concerns and my concerns became public. That's when shit hit the fan. And it sounds like that's, that was the same kind of scenario there is, you know, it, it once, once people outside y'all's immediate circles could see what was happening and they were kind of put on blast. That's when, you know, they just had to strike and had to silence you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Of course, they had put Brendan on suspension. He had been on suspension pending an investigation into his uh, part uh, his part in the unionizing efforts because they claimed that he was management when he wasn't. Right. Uh, he was on suspension all this time as well. So he was months on paid suspension, and they fired him about a week after me. Well, this has all been pretty drab, right? There, This is like... This is not a this is not so far been like a hopeful story, but there has been some hope. OK, uh, Brendan was suspended in, and then fired because he was management or no, no, no. There was an election, right? Yeah, we had an election. You had an election and you oh, won. Yes. So you won recognition. They did not voluntarily recognize you. The state is forcing them to recognize you. Now they have to bargain with you in good faith. Additionally. Brendan's firing, his suspension, then his firing, which was ostensibly because he was a boss helping with the union efforts, which is illegal, right? You can't do that. And that is, if that were true, you know, there would be some grounds there because that you can't do that as a boss. You can't encourage or discourage or, or, or you know, promote or threaten or, or whatever. It's, you know, you're supposed to be neutral ostensibly. Yeah. Um, but the NLRB ruled that, he is not management, right? Yeah, that's exactly what they ruled. And so he's expecting reinstatement then at some point. Hopefully, um, but they are still fighting that decision. 
it's kind of the same thing with mine. The regional director has found calls to believe that both of us were terminated unfairly, um, but then it has to go to the basically a court system. Uh, and of course, OVEC has hired a lawyer who is still kind of fighting this, but they still have the opportunity to settle too. Um, and right. settlement could be anything as well. Um, but part of that would at least be back pay for the time that we have not been working. Right, right. Um, and and so, you know, you mentioned it there. There's some hope that, that you could be reinstated or there could be a settlement in both of both of your cases, uh, potentially. And and so, you know, there's some hopeful news there uh, that, you know, th- through the, you know, the dreary, <laughs> you know, the, the unfortunate kind of uh, – uh, talk that we've been having, what would be your message to people that are working in small nonprofits um, that are that are unhappy with, with some things or that want to make sure that they get in writing the things that they like about their job? You know, listening to this interview, the fight that y'all have had to put up with from management over like the most meager types of things right what would be your message to somebody that is like that would be like listening to this and maybe even being a bit disheartened about and apprehensive about um fighting themselves i think the first thing i would say is that even when you're fighting for justice you deserve justice yourself and a union is a big part of that in the workplace. And you deserve to have that, whether or not management likes it or not. Um, so never feel discouraged um, to step up and say you want a union. Um, it's your right. And uh, you have to remember that. Just as much as it's it's the right for people to have clean air and clean water, it's your right to have union at your back as well in the workplace. So don't don't let them ever tell you that it's not good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's good. And I think that, you know, um, I, I think that I would encourage people listening to this, that, that the reaction, you know, management has had is not an indication that, um, you know, unionization is bad, that uh, the fight is futile. I think that it is an illustration of the importance of and the necessity of the fight. Um, because, you know, if the these meager of things that are being asked for can cause such consternation and cause such a fight among management, uh, they could have done this at the drop of a hat, right? Anything could have uh, could have turned them against you. And if it had come at a time other than this, you would not have been organized in a way that would have allowed you to fight it. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. 
All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Put a there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Labor is entitled to all it creates, which is everything. Good morning and welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. This is Labor Day weekend 2021. My name is Jacob Morrison. Here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. Uh, We've come to our final segment and thus our final interview in our IWW interview series. And we have rounded out with probably the most well-known IWW campaign in the 21st century. That is the Burgerville Workers Union. They have done what no one else has to this point. They've organized a fast food restaurant chain. They are the only federally recognized fast food labor union in the country, and they are recognized in multiple Burgerville locations. We talked to a couple of the stewards in their union here, Luis and Emily. This is their story. Yeah, um, I'm Emily. Uh, and my name is Luis. Uh, I've been working at Burgerville uh, since 2014. I had a, a break during COVID uh, and uh, uh, been a part of the IWW for a while as well. Uh, Emily, how long have you been at Burgerville? Um, I've been there for three years as of this month. Yes, it was a couple of days ago, actually. And I've been part of the union, I would say really involved with the union over the past year, year and a half, specific, uh, specifically through COVID. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And y'all, um, can, can y'all tell us Burgerville? What, what is Burgerville? Um, we're a fast food chain on the in Oregon and Washington on the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest. <clears throat> Louise, you've been in the uh, in in the Burgerville Union for a while now. Can you talk to us some about your? And you mentioned that you were in the IWW before the campaign at Burgerville, actually, which is which is fascinating um, because you know the IWW is not not a terribly large union. Can you talk like? How did you find? How did you come to join the IWW? Some of your a bit of your history there, and then um, to starting the campaign at Burgerville. 
Yeah. Um, I saw I joined the IWW when I moved to Portland. Um, and, uh, I was looking for, you know, relationships with other, you know, uh, workers who wanted to cause trouble. I mean, that's a, the thing I believe in. It's the thing I want to be a part of. Um, and Portland has had a really strong presence of the IWW for quite a while, um, including, uh, you know, different, different campaigns at different stores and lots of different stuff. And I, I really was inspired by, just the all the people I met and all the um, the energy that that people had um, and uh, yeah and I was working at Burgerville and uh, had relationships with other folks working at other stores and uh, we started having conversations about you know what was going wrong and I remember I I uh, um, when I first started I thought it was going pretty well as a job it was at the airport location and I uh, was on the uh, on the bus with somebody um uh coming back from work and i said hey you know it seems like people really like this place and then he says no everyone's being nice because you're new we all hate it here <laughs> and uh that was my moment when i knew that there was going to be plenty of trouble to cause here so uh yeah we've been uh um we launched our union in 2016 um we were uh thought of ourselves as sort of uh, next next step after all the fast food worker organizing that had been happening, forming a real union that was a substantial organization that we could, you know, make make some gains with. And we um, have been fighting ever since. Um, we won legal recognition at, 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 at a few stores and um, have made quite a few changes to vertical policy that I think are generally for the better. So why did you go? Why did everybody go with the IWW? I guess you kind of had that at that predilection because of your membership there but why did everybody else make the collective decision to say we're going to go with the iww instead of um you know a different union yeah that's a great question um i I think there's two ways to answer that or two reasons for it um one answer is that um you know the iww really values like workers on the job having a say and really values democracy um, and, uh, you know, we didn't want to just, uh, like I've had experience, uh, as a member with Unite Here, I've had, I've had friends who have experience with SEIU and these other bigger unions. And I think it can be really alienating and, and we really wanted to, you know, part of this is that we were young and wanted to go on an adventure, but I think part of it is just realizing that we wanted to be in the driver's seat. Um, and that really wasn't going to happen in a bigger union. So um, that's in the IWW values. And hopefully as it gets bigger, it's going to continue valuing that. Um, uh, the other uh, the other point to, for me personally is that I really do believe in the IWW's bigger vision. I mean, the IWW thinks that building unions is the first step to changing a whole lot more in our society. And, you know, having working class people have a say over our own lives, not just in the shop floor, but everywhere else. And I think that... Um, to the extent that we can help that we in our organizing can help Burgerville workers and help other people in the city kind of see that bigger thing. Um, I think that's really important. And I really value that as part of what the IWW does. Right. Right. So, um, you mentioned that there were some, uh, you know, that the company likes to put on a, 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 a big, a good face, so to speak. And, but that there was actually a lot of discontent. What were some of the issues that, uh, that, that, um, drove people to say that this isn't good enough and we're going to have to fight to get better? Well, uh, money was a big major, was a major thing for us. And it still is, um, you know, it's fast food. People, uh, 
there's an expectation that people who work in fast food just don't make a lot of money. Um, and I think part of that is because there's an expectation that they're, you know, um, uh, younger or don't have obligations and stuff. And, you know, we can go into that question, but it, the fact is there's just plenty of people that are trying to make a living with families or, or, you know, on their own. Um, and the, and the money just wasn't good enough. Um, so that was a big thing. Um, I also think that, uh, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a place where, like most jobs, you don't feel like you have a lot of power. You know, I think the schedule is a big thing that comes up for people. Um, uh, schedules changed when we first started. Schedules changed every week and could change pretty dramatically, and they still change uh, pretty dramatically sometimes. And um, I think that pe- people wanted that consistency and feel like they could really rely on this job. I've been following the campaign there for a while, and um, management did not take it lying down. They, they've put up a fight, right? I would say so. I would say so, and I think we've put up a fight as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, been a fight. It, Emily, when you came in, you, you know, you came in, you said three years ago, is that right? Yeah. So, uh, it has. There has never not been a union fight going on at Burgerville. Your through your entire employment there. How, uh, like, were you aware of that when you, uh, you know, when you signed on to like be a Burgerville employee? Like, was that part of the reason that you wanted to go there? Because there's a union there. Maybe there will be some added protection. Maybe it'll be a little bit better. Or like, how you know. Why did you why did you want to work at Burgerville and what was it like jumping into this fight? So I honestly had really no idea that that they were doing union stuff and when I first came on um I came on due to personal reasons and I just had to get a job real real fast um and this is the one that I could just get as fast as I could um but when I came in I think it was like maybe the second or third day I was working and um this this guy who used to work with us, he was the steward lead in the store at the time. His name was Chris Merkel. And um, <clears throat> he just came up to me and he just started going, talking to me about everything. And he was like, hey, we're trying to do this and this is what we're trying to do here. And like, he just started talking to me about the union. It was like, this would be awesome if you get involved. And like, we're trying to like fight back as soon fight back his crew and everything. I was just like, Oh, okay. And then from then on, he just like kept getting updated and then he left and then kind of, I just kind of got involved with it slowly over time. Um, but yeah, there was always a fight going on when I was working there, we were always doing petitions for something, always fighting for our rights, always had our backs with everything. So I thought it was really cool. And it was really nice to be in a space where we had that, um, had people behind us who were willing to fight for workers, even though in that job setting, it was like, I know like McDonald's and other stuff, they don't have that. So so to have that, it was felt like a more better security, like a nice security blanket. I I know people, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, of some of my family, they're very conflict averse. Uh, They would really recoil. And I think, you know, part of it is, is due to kind of, the conditioning that they've had, but they they would really be apprehensive about being in an, envi- in an environment where there's constant conflict. But that was like relieving for you. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also one of those type of people, like Luis said, like I'm the type of person that likes to fight back. I like to stand up for people who don't like to stand up for themselves. Like I like to make I like to make problems for people who yeah. are thinking like, oh, well, 
there shouldn't be any problems like oh there's definitely problems here you know I'm just like I just like to be that person I've always been that person so when I found out like this is going on, I was like oh yeah you know hell yeah like I'm I'm in with this like Let's do this. <laughs> you mentioned that, uh, you know, I, and I can't remember if this was before we started recording or after, but that you started being more, much more active in the last year, even though you've been working there in uh, for the last three years. What was the catalyst that and now you're a steward, I think, at, at your at your location. What was the catalyst there that that said, OK, I'm really going to I'm really going to try to pitch in and do more like what what changed for you? The steward before me kind of wanted to drop down. He wasn't wanting to really be involved as much anymore, and there wasn't really anybody willing to step up. And it was was kind of more of like I kind of got pushed into it at first a little bit, but then more as I talked to (laughs) Louis about everything – Luis about everything um and then um we also had this previous person named jess who was working with me they it started realizing that like oh this is something that's really good and it could be good for me too in the future you know um and so i started taking further steps into becoming a steward and getting more and more involved and i just kind of took it from there awesome i love that you got pushed into it that's great (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome emily yeah and that speaks to your (laughs) i think that speaks to your union that you did have people pushing you into i don't know that leadership would be the right word but activeness because there are a lot of unions that that young people or new people getting too involved is kind of threatening to the people that have power and and so i I love to hear that they're really encouraging people to get involved emily thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed talking to you yeah of course thank you for inviting me to speak on your amazing radio show (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks emily the valley labor report